chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So it's not a situation of simple possession. We are God's possessions, property, uh, slaves. But instead, it is a situation of adoption, the spirit of adoption, so that we can address God as Jesus addressed God, Father. And it's emphasized by the use of the Abba. Abba, and then immediately follow, which is a transliteration of the Aramaic for Father, Abba, and then he immediately follows it with the Greek, pater, the formal word for father. So here we have an interesting articulation. When we cry, Abba, Father, when we cry, Daddy, Daddy, when we cry out to God the Creator as our, as we would cry out to a parent, it is that very spirit, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit, our inner sense, that we are children of God. When we cry out in prayer, when we cry out in need to God, our Creator, as a father, as our parent, when we cry, Daddy, Daddy, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That, that concept of being an heir of God, what might that mean? Given the context that we've come through in the last seven and now eighth chapter. What might it mean to be an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ? You're going to inherit some really neat things if you suffer along with them. Their family, your family. Your yes, you're part of the family. You are going to inherit but, but it's even more than something that's going to happen to us. You are, in a sense, when you are an heir, when you are a joint heir with the prince, when you are already in the family, there is, there is something that you already receive. It's like a sense of privilege, too, just to be, as they say, a citizen of... The honor. A, a privilege, it's an honor. A guardianship. I'm sorry? Guardianship. When you're adopted, your adopted parent is your guardian. Becomes your guardian and your protector. Yes, okay. 
more? What else comes if you, if, if you, let's put it in human terms, if you become a member or adopted into the royal family of Great Britain, you become an heir of what? The kingdom. To the throne. The throne, the, the kingdom, throne. power, authority, position, relationship. Your average British subject can't pick the phone and call Bertie and talk to her nibs. But if you're a member of the royal family, you get to. You can go to Balmoral with the rest of them and, and see her yourself. You can have that relationship. You can make a direct communication. You can be in the presence of and enjoy the, the benefits of being a member of the family. Which means to be right there. You can address the queen directly. Well, that's almost like your, that Jewish thing about being an insider again, isn't it? The, uh, there is select an, and elect. There is, yes, part being part of the elect, to use that terminology, means that you are part of the family of God. You're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. It's interesting when you have, you have that hierarchy there with that. You know, you're joint, so you're at the same level as Christ, which is implying that he's under another level. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you get that. You are an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. You could be an heir of God, but not a joint heir of Christ. Do we know any of those people? <coughs> Well, they're called saints. Mm -hmm. well, we're saints. We're all. We're all. That's right. Yes, remember, we're all agios. So set the saints apart. are all there together. We're all together. Who might the them. children of God be who are not joint heirs with Christ? Angels, maybe. Well, not those nasty Jews again. Not those nasty. God, he's insulting them again, isn't he? God, so wonder he lived this Nasty long. Jews? I wouldn't say nasty, nasty Jews. They're heirs of God. They're just not up there with us. Okay, now that's, that, right. yes, you could separate. include the, the, the pre-Christian era saints. Not the bride of Christ. Right. They could be believers who are not Christians. Right. Which would be, I'm not going to use the term, those nasty Jews. But it could be those who are children of God but not joint heirs with Christ could be those of the Old Covenant. Well, we just or, spoke about Abraham, you know, of being saved through his faith and right? trust in God. Yes. And so now we have this. Oh, how are we going to distinguish him from, from the other well, He's Jews? an heir. Abraham had a co joint with you, man. Huh? They didn't trust in God, so that's the. That's they the, uh, they're the not judgment. trusting now in the Messiah, Christ oh, Jesus. Messiah. Okay. Yeah, when you we figured that. They're living under the covenant of Moses in that attempting to live by that relationship. They are children of God, but they're not yet joint heirs with Christ. And I underline not yet. And well, would it also include people who have not accepted the gift of grace? I would say that that is there one and the same. Yeah. Anybody who has 
because in many cases the Jewish people at, at the Paul's, in the period that Paul is talking about especially don't have a conception of grace functioning it, it, it's, it's legality it's, it's, it's duties and responsibilities it's, it's you are in a relationship with God through the covenant and this means you have to do these things and you get these privileges as a result it's not an issue of grace it's an issue of law, duty and, and that would include many if not most of the Jews of Paul's day except, especially except for those who have moved into a relationship with Christ as the Messiah and understand that God gives us something that we do not deserve cannot deserve certainly don't merit God's love and receiving that love makes you, which comes from Christ, makes you a joint heir with Christ. The joint heirs are those of that same, in, in a royal family, are those of the same generation. Very so who is, the, who is the principal heir of the queen right now? Charles. Oh, mm -hmm. All right. Now, who is the principal heir of Charles? Uh, William. William. Who is joint heir with William? Harry. Harry. Yeah. Prince Harry. Yeah. Joint heirs with Charles would be Charles's brother and sister. Then they have sisters. Yeah, sister. yeah. So the joint heirs are according to generations. But there's a hierarchy there still. There is a hierarchy. So he's Lisa's absolutely right. He's got the Jews down there, you know. They're I mean, children they're of God. Down. They're good. They're children of God, but they're like you know nephews and second cousins. Until they and are the brother. Until know. they are graduated into joint heirship, yeah, that idea is there. <laughs> that must not be too now, popular with. But the but before we push yeah. it, that is a minor part of what's being said here. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and it's in that state. Of being adopted, and we're adopted, not born into it. So we're adopted in to being children of God, and we are joint heirs with Christ. So we are adopted, yet we are joint. Can't you imagine that those Jews who are born into it are going to be pissed off? Yeah. These adopted ones get to be joint heirs, and they don't have to do anything either. They don't have to do anything physically, and that is probably part of what's going on in Paul's mind when he's looking at the objections of the Jewish Christian leadership to the uh, addition of Gentile Christians on such free terms. Here they are, Johnny-come-latelys. Here they are, children of God, yes, but they're adopted children of God. Make them sit in the back. And he's saying, no, join heirs with Christ. Join heirs with Christ. Now, before you push it too far, we wouldn't do that. Realize, well, it, it's too late. <laughs> before we push it too far, this is the status that everyone gets, even the Jewish Christians who accept the grace, got it right on the nose who live in that relationship, the relationship of salvation by grace through faith, who live in the relationship that is typified by grace through faith. 
the relationship articulated by Abraham. It's not about genetic background or were you actually born in or adopted in or what level you live at. It's the relationship you have to the Father. So then those Old Testament saints and anybody who came in before Christ who did it via faith. Abraham. Example. Is a perfect Would be a example. joint heir. Exactly. With Christ as well because they, even though they came before, they were under the covenant. It's, it's within which covenant you're functioning. Okay, so the who, covenant so of who, faith or the covenant of law? So then who, who would... Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Abraham was law. Yeah, even keeping the law. No, Abraham was pre-law. Way pre-law. Abraham was faith. Abraham was faith. <sighs> Moses is law. But he didn't have Jesus. So you're saying no. after He had no faith in Jesus. Even though it was an act of faith to keep the law the best they could. <laughs> yes. Are you saying you got to be careful about pushing this. Well, that's what I'm Are you saying, because I, I, I thought maybe everybody is joint heirs. Everybody who gets to heaven because of faithing in whatever act yes. are joint heirs with Christ. I, I, I'm not sure. Yes, in a sense, that's correct. We're all chil- we are children of God. Being a joint heir with Christ puts you into a character of relationship. I'm not looking so much towards their end result as the character of the relationship which is his point here. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You're not a slave of God although he sometimes uses that language. Instead, the most important aspect here is you received a spirit of adoption. You were outsiders. Gentile Christians are outsiders. But you have received a spirit of adoption. And actuality, I would say fundamentally, we're all outsiders. Even Hebrews, born of Hebrews. But he's using that term because there was a mindset, and certainly through the whole Bible there is a mindset, there's a certain group of people yeah. that God has singled out from among The elect of, of yeah. God's children. I mean, you've got the Hebrews, you've got the various tribes, you've got the Judahites who become the Jews within that larger group. And it's those folk who've been considering themselves the top dog. And they're reading this, or they're hearing it read. And they're saying, what are you talking about? Where are the ones that should be? That's been the continual refrain. He's addressing these Jewish Christians frequently. And it's interesting because here he's shifting and he's saying, you, you, you. And my argument is, not, is so much that he's trying to remind them that we are all adopted children of God. Every one of us, regardless of our source of birth. Yeah, but I think it goes further than that, unless you've got something in Greek that says that's a separate sentence, which would be wonderful. At the end, because he's got a contingency there. Well, you're not I'm this, holding, and you're not this, and less. I'm holding that for a minute. Okay, I'm more interested in the relationship here, because that's what Paul is interested in. Okay. The relationship with the Father, the relationship we have with God, Abba Pater. What is our relationship? Do we get to address Abba as Abba? I don't mean the rock band. Or do we get to have to address God as, oh, master, oh. Um, 
and the relationship that Jesus reflected was more Father, our Father who art in heaven. I like their relationship. I still don't like the way our Father protected his son. You know what I'm saying? That's not a relationship I particularly would want if I'm Paul to be pointing out to these people. This is a relationship you want. You want to have so much faith that you're going to be killed, tortured, and die so that the rest of us can be forgiven. That's the relationship I want with my father. But he didn't I want my father to protect me. Huh? But then that father did raise him up. Oh, yeah. And kept his promise. Him. I mean, luckily, that's not the end of the story, though. Nope. And right, he that, never asked that us same to father that. followed through on his word and did raise him. I like that part of it, but I don't think most of us would want to go through the torture and everything else to get to that part part without going through it. Thank you, Paul. That's that if again, isn't it? It's the relationship that Paul is focusing in here on. And the fact that unlike before, under the Mosaic Covenant, where the address was, uh, to use the Hebrew phrase, Baruch atah Adonai, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. Uh, how, close, like how warm and fuzzy can you get with, Blessed, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You, you, you can't. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Blessed, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. That's way up there, and I'm way down here. But Abba is like a little child holding up his or her arms to their daddy. It's like the Dr. Phil version. <laughs> oh. oh, thank you for... Instead of separated by light years of status, it's a relational right there. It's the way it should be, my son. Uh, God's up there, we're down here, and our job is to get there. That's the Jewish. Yes, there you go. That reflects it. And the good news is, is that God doesn't view it as our job to get us there. God views it as God's job to get us there. Jesus' job. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Jesus and God. Who is God? Now, it's the relationship that's the focus. Not all the details of the joint, what that means. We are all children of God. You could even make the argument that every human being, regardless of the relationship of faith, are children of God. But joint heirs with Christ is another matter. That's a connection to Jesus himself. You could make that argument. Paul's not making it here, but you could make that argument. And you, and you kind of need that extra intermediary in order to get the Gentiles in. Right? Yes. Right. So you wonder which came first. Was it Paul mm-hmm. deciding that the Old Covenant was insufficient, or was it his notion that somehow the Gentiles needed to be brought in? The Gentiles were okay. The Gentiles were being brought in even before Paul, but it was a dribble. It was small numbers. It wasn't really big. The objective of preaching about Jesus was to preach to 
the Jews. This is the Messiah. Those Gentiles who happen to hear about it, yeah, come on in. You're welcome too. But you've got to become a good Jew. You, you know, go whole hog. <laughs> Don't eat the hog anymore. Uh, you've got to come all the way in. That was the message that pre-existed Paul. It is, I think, a real likely probability that the opposition to early Christians was early Gentiles within Christianity, especially that opposition expressed by Paul, had to do with the violation of, of the covenant relationship that these Gentiles brought with them within, into it. They came in and did not give up being Gentiles. Therefore, the opposition to the spread of Christianity into Gentileism was they were perverting it. They were polluting it. They're weakening it. Weakening it. Yeah, they're weakening the covenant relationship. Paul's opposition to it can be seen in, in that character. And then he completely got reversed. And hence, the opposition to Paul was based on the same thing. And we see that throughout Paul's letters. When he it comes up against opposition from the, the brethren of James, from the circumcision party, from the Jewish Christian faction, it's always because Paul is letting these stinky, smelling, pork-eating, uncircumcised heathens into the family of God without teaching them that they need to get themselves clean first. And this, it, 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 yes, it is a kind of racism going on. Jewish hating Gentiles because of what Gentiles do. The difference being that the Gentiles could do things to either ameliorate the issue or completely wipe it out. The official position of the church at Jerusalem Conference, according to the Acts of the Apostles, was... If you avoid pork and you avoid things, meat with blood in it, and you avoid meat that, meat that has been strangled, and you avoid fornication, if you avoid these things, these biggies, it'll be okay. Which were basically the rules that were, had been established for all Gentiles interacting with Jews in Jewish territory to begin with. And you got some health issues there. If they don't, I don't know about the fourth one, but the first three, they get trichinosis and die. The fourth one gives you AIDS. Today, <laughs> <laughs> and back then too, but it more yeah. likely other venereal yeah. diseases. Exactly. But the but the point. before then. But yeah. but uh, you know, I find it interesting that they weren't so much interested in clothing, although that's really high up in the law too. But it's those dietary issues that were important to them. Now, they would let the Gentiles in if they did all of that. But there were some who were even harder line than that and said, no, you got to get circumcised. And that's what the letter of Galatians was about, dealing with the whole issue of, is it, is, is it necessary for Gentiles to become Jews in order to be Christians? Is it possible for Gentiles to remain Gentiles and be a good Christian being sanctified? Which is the more precise way of asking the question. This question had been settled, essentially, um, 
with the answer of yes at the Jerusalem conference, but there were groups within Christian, Jewish Christianity who refused to accept that position. And therefore you have this situation where within the, the church in that day, you had essentially a stratification. And if you were a good Pharisaic Jewish Christian, you were better than some former Gentile who's become a Jew and a heck of a lot better than one of those Gentiles who has never stopped being a Gentile and is a Christian but not a Jew. And so they had this stratification of structure and Paul is inverting that stratification which he has done before and will do again. And it's saying it has nothing to do with your ancestry, has nothing to do with whether or not you keep the dietary regulations or circumcision or any of the Mosaic Covenant. It's entirely based on being a joint heir with Christ. And that, as we found out earlier on, being a, being a child of God and a joint heir of Christ is through, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's that relationship that results from that that is most important to Paul here. Can you address God as Abba? Or must it be Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Blessed, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. And certainly the Jews had a relationship that was more distant and wasn't as personal as the relationship that Paul is saying but they had the, the curtain in the temple before it tore. Yes. All those, they couldn't do You couldn't enter the Holy of Holies because you get zapped. Don't you <laughs> dare touch the Ark of the Covenant. You'll get zapped. Yeah. Uh, you stayed away. God is watching us from a distance is a very Jewish conception of Yahweh. It's not a Christian conception. Well, it has become one, yeah. but it's not fundamentally a Christian conception. Now, that being said, don't push it too far because you can find in the Old Testament amongst Jewish theological uh, writing especially, you can find within the Old Testament, within the, the, the prophets, oh, exactly. a relationship that is closer and more fatherly and not as kingly. And you can find elements within Christianity that emphasize the lordship, the kingship the mastery. We even hear it in Paul. So don't push it to the extreme. But I think there is, Paul is identifying a fundamental difference that is true and he wants to be true, especially for Christians in reminding us of this, that it's a relationship as one would have with a parent, not as one would have with the king. Isn't it going one step further than the relationship they had in the Old Testament or prior to Christ in that they, even if there was a relationship there, um, it was always through the priest. It wasn't to the general population. And here it's going a step further and it's saying, you know, you don't have to use Jesus as your priest to get to God. It, it's it's your, you have the same access that Jesus does to God. Because you're, because. because you're joint heirs, because you're adopted, and you're here, there's no longer now. Uh, you've got, the, you have to go through a priest. The people were not joint heirs with the high priest. There's no theology in Judaism about that. But Christ is understood as our high priest. Yeah, sure is. That's what I'm but Christ is understood as priest, prophet, 
king and sacrifice. I mean, he fills the whole panoply. He is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice and the sacrificer. Now, we have a relationship with Christ, and through that relationship with Christ, we have access, direct access, to the Father. So in that respect, yes. But it's still through Christ. Because you're in Christ. Because you're in Christ, and Christ is in you. So that, that joint heirness has to be remembered. Regardless of what you say about the rest. That joint heirness gives you the authority, which we talked about, the right, the privilege, the position of saying Abba and not Melech Olam, King of the Universe. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be like Christ is your brother? Yes. He's, he's your brother. His blood's in you. The your father's blood. Even the familial language utilized here is critical. That is what Paul is emphasizing. The familial language. Hence Christ as brother does get the idea across in more modern conceptions. Alright? But the Jews have have their relationship with God by virtue of the fact that they were they were Jews. They were part of the family. They were born the into the family. They had yeah. a, a covenant. They they took that with them, you know, they had their paraphernalia to go with it. You got me thinking of the you know, the good things happen to bad people. They're thinking, why do bad things happen to good Pharisees? I can hear Because them. somebody said, which was their answer. Because somebody said, but somewhere some, in there. Now something bad's happening to them because their power is being taken away. Yeah. I'm a good Pharisee. I followed everything. Paul, what are you saying? What are you saying? You Paul, is saying Paul is saying, you're not as good as you think <laughs> you are. Well, it is time because you think about changing an entire culture and lifestyle. I mean, they were going in one it direction. It was based on God and, and rules. They, and now all of a sudden they're going, they're having to go in a completely, so it would be very difficult to resist that. And, and Paul doesn't do that real gently, does he? Paul doesn't do anything gently. <laughs> he said to those who were so hung up on circumcision that they made it the, the most important issue in their argument against the Gentile Christians. He said, if you think circumcision is so important, just chop the whole thing off. Although God, Christ didn't deal with Paul gently either. I mean, oh no, so knocked him off his ass, blinded him. He's consistent with yeah. how you know, he, yeah. he was treated. It doesn't sound to me like he's trying to change the Jewish Christians as much as he is to pull away from them. Yeah, it does sound that way. He's trying to force, push the Jewish Christians into understanding that it's not by their background, ancestry, upbringing, education, that they have any better position. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a Jew, be a Jew. Be a good Jew. That's, that, that's a cultural thing. That's up to you. doesn't make you any more Christian to be a Jew than to be a Gentile. Yeah, but using your family analogy, he's saying you, you guys thought you were, you know. You really thought you related. were the only yes, bit. Right. We got some new brothers for you. Yeah. And you're not going to like them. They're dirty. They're smelly. They don't do anything. They, they break all your nice laws. Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I now, think these letters were written to people who already believed just what he believed. And they're not written to persuade anybody. You don't write a letter I, like this. To I don't think he cares, somebody. actually. It doesn't look like he cares. Doesn't well, he? there were times. There's, there's, for example, the Corinthians. 
Oh, the Corinthian correspondences are filled with vitriol, uh, self-defense, and attack because he was arguing against people who were uh, essentially denying his authority as apostle. Uh, the letter of the Galatians was written to a church that he, he's, you've abandoned. You've been bewitched into leaving the gospel for another gospel, which is not another gospel. Um, his letters at times are really, really hard, and he, he wrote them attempting to recover people. Here he's writing to introduce himself to a church he has never met. There may be a few members who have heard about him, and one or two he may have met, but to a, it's a congregation, congregations, that he has never met or been to yet. This is a letter of introduction based upon knowing that there are um, certain things, certain characteristics of the relationship between Jews and Christian, Jews and Gentiles within the church that seem to be a universal, i.e., Jews seem to be oppressing Gentiles within the church. And he's saying there's no room for that. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Now, we focus in on that male or female bit because that's the important one for us in today's context. Especially us women. Yes. But think about it. What if, what if you're a Gentile woman in that world? <laughs> you got a double strike against you. What if you're a Gentile slave woman? You got a triple, triple strike point. against you in that world. Triple points. But the focus, the, the most important thing for Paul seemed to be Jew nor Greek. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither Jewish people nor Gentile people. In Jesus Christ, we are all one. And that message is critical. That was the critical part of that critical message in Galatians. You're, you're getting a little bit of a taste of it here, but he has that stratification conception of joint heir with Christ. But you see, that would be true. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You are or all, to merge the two. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all joint heirs with Christ. No, I, yeah, I, outside I, of Christ, there is a difference. Oh, yeah. Not inside Christ, though. Uh, yeah. You know, he's, I just noticed here, it said they finally in Romans identify the one time in the entire Bible that he identifies a scribe. He's talking to Tertius. scribes. Yeah, he's dictating. All the whole time. So well, if I'm a scribe, I might be filtering some of this, might I not? Uh, yeah. In fact, there are really good, strong arguments in favor of understanding that the pastoral epistles are more affected by the scribes than the rest of them. Yeah. We'll talk about that at a later time. Tertius, Tertius is the name of the amanuensis, the scribe who copied down Romans. Was he a very educated slave or what? Well, he would, he would have been a very educated Gentile. His name is a Gentile name. Aha, he's a Gentile. You get that? And he is taking dictation in the very true sense of the word. He is writing down what Paul is saying. We as hope. Paul is saying. We hope it's word for word even though he's a Gentile. No. Almost certainly word for word at this point because Paul can then take it and read it and decide if he liked it. We know that's a fact because, for example, when he dictated Galatians, at, well, at one point it stops and he says, see what big letters I write with? This is the sign of all my letters that I've signed it. And oh, then yeah. he goes and he writes a whole paragraph after that reiterating what he had said before. So he's done dictating, he picks it up, right. reads the scroll, decides he wants to reiterate something he had said earlier, and he writes it with his own hand. 
There's only one letter that we're almost certain Paul wrote with his own hand all the way through, and that's Philemon. And you can tell it by the choppier use of Greek. He writes with more simple sentences when he's writing by hand than he does when he's dictating orally. The di I'll go ahead and talk about it. The difference between Romans, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, and Philemon, I mean, Philippians, and Philemon, Colossians, the difference between those and the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, is, appears to be that there was a period of time between when Paul dictated the pastoral epistles and when the scribe was able to write them down. Because Paul was imprisoned and the scribe apparently was too and didn't have access to writing materials. Hence, Paul dictated, they remembered. He dictated two letters to Timothy and one letter to, to Titus from prison. The first letter to Timothy, which would have been further removed from when it got written down, is 1 Timothy. Has a greater density of non-Pauline terms and words and a greater density of non-Pauline usage of grammar and usage of the words that are Pauline than the clearly authentic letters of Paul. And the second letter, second letter of Timothy has fewer of them because it's closer to when the scribe wrote it down, but still has more non-Pauline verbs and non-Pauline grammar and non-Pauline words and Pauline words that are misused. Which leads some New Testament scholars to say Paul dictated 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. More time separated 1st Timothy from being written down than 2nd Timothy from being written down. So 2nd Timothy is more Pauline in all of its utilizations than 1st Timothy is. Both reflect Pauline thoughts, but in lesser, to lesser degrees, Pauline language and grammar. Um, and therefore, you have introductions of non-Pauline thoughts and words and conceptions within the pastorals, and you don't have those in the other letters, principally because Paul could read them. Paul could say, let me see what you've written. <laughs> and he reads it, and he says, okay, let's pick it up from there, or correct that, or whatever. But you said he wrote in choppier Greek, so he might not have known as much Greek as the guy well, He was writing. totally fluent in Greek. It's that there's a difference between how a person speaks, you know this, how a person speaks and how they write. And especially in the ancient world, you could be highly educated, but if your education isn't in writing itself, all right, you're, when you actually sit down to write, your pen personship will be not so good. That also happens today. When you get a doctorate, you have to take a course in terrible writing style. <laughs> but, uh, so fast. but the style of writing would be lesser. I mean, the, the scribes were trained to write beautifully. They were trained to copy what they were reading or to copy what was being said to them exactly. That's how they were trained. And Emanuensis was trained and paid based upon how how much fidelity what they wrote had to what was the original. If it was a copy, or how close 
what the person wrote down was to what they were dictated. Now, uh, Paul, this Tertius was probably not taking pay for this, but I'm sure Paul was looking over his shoulder as he dictated, stopping, reading it, giving it back, whatever. And there are times where some people think this is the point where Paul stopped, read what had been written, and then picked it up again. That seems to have happened twice in Philippians, by the way. That's why the finalies occur several times in Philippians. <laughs> um, but no, that's, that's what we have going on in Romans. We have, he's dictating to Tertius. Tertius is writing this down, and I believe he's writing it down pretty much as Paul dictated it. But Paul's dictating to, or and Paul is dictating to, a Gentile. Yes. And I just think that might have a little bit of back and forth there. It might, but if, but if Tertius yeah. wrote down something that Paul didn't say or intend to say, and Paul read it, he would have corrected it. I'm thinking that. I'm also thinking, well, you've been doing this for all these years, Mr. Gentile. I'm really trying to get the Gentiles in. So that's a pretty good idea. Right? <laughs> Could be. Not a bad idea. Now, a real, that was a little interesting a sidebar. Yeah. Let's move back into what we were talking about, the relationship here. It's a re, Paul's focus is on the relationship. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God which was where I was asking the original question. Heir of God, join heirs with Christ. You know, what do we get? We get position, we get access, mm -hmm. which was my point about the queen. We have access to the pater, to Abba, to the Father, to the creator of the universe. It's no longer this distance, Melech Olam, king of the universe. It's now right here, right now. If. Now, is it literal if or rhetorical if? If, in fact, God, we suffer with, well, but if it's rhetorical, that means he's assuming it's true. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. If we're going to suffer with him, we're going to get glorified with him too. Well, that's what, he's, you know, that's what Stan was saying. He raised from the dead. Well, thank you, Stan. But there was a little bit of torture and a, a little whole bunch bit. of pain. He died. That's right. A whole bunch of stuff that went on before that that I'd like for my father to think that my father is going to be there for, with me through. In that relationship you keep talking about. That's a strong relationship. Mm -hmm. That'd be like the father. The prodigal son goes home and the father kills him. But then he goes back to the grave and has Jesus or somebody raise him up, you know, like Lazarus later. Well, no. Well, in the relationship, I'm just talking about the relationship here. Good old Paul. Um, no, I was just curious what the Greek says there, because this one doesn't say it have with him. This says, if at least we are suffering together, in order that we may also be glorified together. With, sharing. with him, in, in conjunction with him, along with him. Uh, Share in the sufferings. It, the word is sum paskumen. Now, pasch in the middle, passion, comes from the word pas. We get the word English word pas, passion from the Greek word pas, mm. which means to suffer. And sum is, is together. So literally, if in fact we suffer together with him. 
If we have access, what rights does that give us? What right? If we have access to God, direct access as a child has to that child's parent, what rights does that give us? Well, what do you think? What, what, what right does your child have with you? To get his buns out of the house and get a job. How about that? <laughs> That'd be the right that I'd like to, be to give. To be protected. To be cared for. Needs care for him. To be cared for, to be protected, to be Talk educated, to, mm -hmm. to, to, to communicate with without a barrier. To be loved. No secretary between you and them. What happened to the love word? To be loved That's and cherished and nurtured and raised up. All of those things. That's the right that joint that children, direct children, have to their parents. To have that direct, immediate, intimate relationship, contact, and all that flows from it. That nurturing, love, protection, upbringing, education. All of that. Acceptance. Acceptance. Uh, yeah. yeah. Being welcomed in. <clears throat> never being... No matter how bad child has been. Here's the prodigal son. No matter how bad the child has been, you welcome home, kill the fatty calf. And those poor Jews over there were like the, the older, older son, <laughs> the older brother, the older brother, That's the older son, mad as can be. You killed Bessie and gave Bessie <laughs> to him <laughs> who wasted your money on wild women. Wow. And of course, he he exaggerates the reality, but from the story itself. But that's what that's what you do. Yeah, that's it. You, that's a, 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 a parent, a true parent, loves the kid, even if the kid is disgusting, has done horrible things. Isn't there another aspect as as a joint heir? There's an inheritance. There's a set of promises yes. that we can claim. Yes. And, you know, and elsewhere in the Bible says all the promises of God. This are is the root. In Christ, right? This and is the are fulfilled in Him. This is why we have access to those promises. All the promises of God are in Christ. They are fulfilled in Christ. They they go to Christ. We who are joint heirs with Christ have access to them directly. As an heir. They become ours. Through Christ. Yeah, all the promises to Christ. There were promises made to individual people. They're no, not, they're not, yeah. we, we don't have claim to those because they weren't made. Unless we fulfill those, those, the requirements of those promises. Some of those are impossible to be fulfilled. Right. Some of them, are, yes. You, know, every, you can't take that verse and say every single promise that no. God made anywhere is now mine to claim because not every promise he made everywhere was to Christ. He made some specific promises to people in the Old Testament well, that were unique to them and conditional on their doing something the that didn't really the, have anything to do with The situation-specific conditional promises apply where the situation is coordinate. Doesn't that sound like Dr. Phil? Situational, conditional? Judge Judy. <laughs> See, I was being nice. <laughs> uh, 
Could, could you go ahead and tell us whether it's rhetorical or real or whatever you were If in, it's, it's real. The, yeah, it's a real statement. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. However, given Paul's position, the answer is yes, you're suffering with him. In, in, together with Christ. Isn't that a conditional suffering. then? Isn't that conditional? It's a real question, but it is a conditional course. Yeah. So you but can't it, have you can't be if, an error. If God, in fact we suffer error. with him and we do so that we may also be glorified with him if and you, we will be. If you don't suffer you will not be a co-heir of Christ. Correct? By that logic. By that statement. If you do not suffer with him then you are not. Just turn it around. You're not going to be. I think you're not going to be a co-heir with Christ. Unless that's a separate sentence which I'd love it to be. No, it's not. Yeah, I know. But so. that's the the the, the fo- just because the one direction is true. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Perhaps if you don't want to be glorified, you don't have to suffer. That's cool. <laughs> that's okay. But you want to be glorified because then, if you're not, you're never going to enter into the presence. You can't say Abba. You know, she's heard this before, but uh, when we were in SAC, we passed through these portals of best men in SAC. And then the other, the other thing was the, uh, for no reason, by the way, the other thing was, the uh, other saying was, we, uh, we play, we work really hard, but we play harder. And I'm thinking, I'd rather not you know, play quite so hard. You so see don't the analogy so, here? So you don't have to work so hard. I might, I might can do with a little less glory. As a human being, I might can do with a little less glory yeah. from my father, but never mind. Well, what, yeah. does it mean, what, what does it mean there we are to suffer? To what does that suffering mean? I mean, I think for different people, it probably has vastly different Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, different things. And consider you may suffer in a way. It doesn't mean <laughs> the next person. Consider the reality suffering. of the day. What are the... Christians in this era going through. Yeah, what was going through my mind is I'm wondering is this, and everything else. is this referring to the general suffering or persecution of the church? The church being the body of Christ. We talked about being a Christian means you're in Christ, Christ is in us. So if the church is being persecuted, mm-hmm. we're, we're suffering along with Christ. Christ look. So is it is it a general suffering or do you think it's much more specific and targeted to the Romans here? Well, I think it's both. I think that that he's speaking specifically to the situation that all Christians are undergoing at that particular moment within the empire. And as the same, it's also because that's true. It's also a principle that when we suffer, Christ suffers with us. And when Christ suffer suffers, when Christ suffered. We were in him and are suffering too. So this doesn't have this doesn't imply that you need to suffer as Christ suffered. Go out and beat on yourself and get yourself crucified. No. That's not what it's saying. No, it is it is an for Paul it is an axiom. Christians suffer. It's it's you are a Christian, you will suffer. Because that certainly was It's what was going on, and it's what would go on for three centuries. He didn't know that, but that's what happened. Yeah, he thought it was going to end tomorrow when Jesus yeah, came next back Tuesday. and saved everybody. Well, not tomorrow, but you know, Tuesday, Tuesday of next week. Give uh, <laughs> uh, it was, a little time. But the point, the point is, is that it was the axiom. You are Christian, 
you therefore suffer. But you're not suffering alone, you're suffering with Christ. Well, that part sounds better. So you've got a suffering buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Well, That's very helpful. Let's get something new done tonight. <laughs> I consider, now that it's time to close, Dan, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And there you go. Answer to your question. The sufferings of this present time. Verse 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth Comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. It can be bad, and it's bad, and it's real, but it isn't a, a, a patch on the glory we will re that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. What a wonderful thing for you to picture. I mean, you don't normally think of you know, the trees and the grass and the world and the stars and the planets eagerly, it, it, he's personifying those, mm -hmm. it, eagerly awaiting what's happening now, this, the, after Christ and these, us, you and me, becoming children of God and mm -hmm. saints and co-heirs with Christ. You don't view that as a tree bending down. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're doing it. <laughs> well, if you think about the concept of, of the creation itself revealing God's handiwork, God's fingerprint in the glory of its creation. You can know about God by looking at what God made. So also here, the, that creation which God made points to and celebrates the really of God's It's kind of like that, like that figure, fig tree too when Jesus cursed it. Cursed because it. Because it didn't know, you know, didn't know to no. be bearing fruit. At that time, it's similar in, in that. That's not uh -huh. one of those fair things. Yeah. For the, I like what you said, but when you get to 20. Uh, for for next the week, creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When this is, reflects a conception that's not just Augustinian. To say that the fall is an Augustinian concept is true. To say that he invented the idea, that St. Augustine invented the idea of the fall is wrong. It goes straight back to Paul. And here we see it reflect one of the concepts in Augustinian thought, which is actually Pauline thought. When humans fell, creation fell. We screw everything up. It's nothing, nothing new exists in our polluting the universe. We've done it from the beginning. We make messes. And so just as the creation fell when we fall, so also our salvation set, is part of the setting free of its bondage to decay. The creation is itself delivered and perfected in this glorious Christ event. Oh, okay. I'm glad you added that because it sounded like God set up something that was going to fail and then say, get off your butt and fix it. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
It's in bondage because we screwed up. Couldn't say that there. Well, but not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Who's the one who subjected it? Is my question. Well, when we fell, we subjected it. It doesn't say that. But that is that in the Greek somewhere? That I no. Where does it say we failed it can, and it's our fault? But it can. It's contained within the whole whole structure of creation itself. Well, Go back to chapter one, one in Romans, where he talks. Chapter. I know where he talks <laughs> about the fact that the universe itself shows us the glory of God. Humans, when we fail to worship God, get perverted by that failure to worship God, by our idolatry, and it has an impact on those things around us, on the creation around us. That was implicit, stated in, in Romans chapter 1. We see it here echoed again in Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. It's not as if creation said, I'm going to become crappy today. Okay. Whose will? But by the will of the one who subjected it. Who is that? Who was given authority? Who was given the responsibility to tend the garden? You're not blaming Adam again. Yes, Jesus. No, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> no, Adam. <laughs> and I'm not putting it in Adam there again. Too. I can't believe it. <laughs> Primarily humans, uh, human, the Adamai, the the human beings, the earth creatures. We screw everything up. We're always making messes. Are there other translations? That, I don't know what the hell I'm reading here. <laughs> All right. Really but this one uh, just says God made it that way. Aha! Uh -huh. Oh, sorry. One who subjected it as this is God. Yeah, well, yeah that's, that's the what the NAS, it. how it implies it. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because he who subjected it in hope that the creation uh, itself will be set free from its slavery. That reads as if it's trying to say that God did it, but that's not what, that's not what the Greek says either. It doesn't say that at all. It's 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 it is a it is um, vague as to who the he is. There is no direct referent. The only referent I can see is those who screwed it up to begin with. <laughs> who screwed it up to begin with? We did. That sounds Pauline, doesn't it? It is Pauline. <laughs> yes. This is interesting. It adds something at the end of the verse 20, which I didn't see anywhere else. It okay. says, um, I'll read the whole verse so you can follow along. For unto vanity hath creation been made subject, not by choice, but by reason of him that made it subject, in hope that creation itself also shall be freed from the bondage of the decay into the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. Him is capitalized in the NAS. It's not capitalized in the NRSV, and there's no way to tell in the Greek. It's out to. The one is all I've got. Uh, uh, yeah, NRSV says one, lowercase. What does yours say, Karen? What does that living thing say? Things that overcame the world against its will at God's command. Whence its will at God's command? That sounds like a combination of Adam and God. You see, God placed the creation under our governance. We were made the gardeners in Eden. 
We, we, were, we were given the responsibility to till it and to keep it. Why would he do such a thing? That was our job. That was our he job. He knows what humans are capable of. As you say, gee, <laughs> why would he do, put that in our hands? I'm just talking for Lee here. Because, because God did. Now, wait a minute, you've been doing real good on your own. <laughs> I wouldn't want to take credit for any of that. You know, if you, if you talk about, you know, who, who is ruling this earth, it's, it's Satan. Right. And so... He's the prince of the power of the air. Right. So not, you know, this verse 20... Yeah, it could be Satan. Not by choice, mm. but by reason of him that made it subject. I mean, we're the ones uh. who enabled Satan to now be the ruler of this earth. Who first tempted us. Right. Satan. Or the serpent. I can believe that. And equality is placed there. We are given dominion over the earth under Satan in that sense. And just as we were freed from that sinful bondage that, that Satan, you know, had, were all born into sin, it's uh-huh. saying in hope that the creation itself shall be freed it's still in bondage of, and in dominion of, by Satan. Satan's controlling and ruling. Until, until glorification occurs. So we were freed. And then, but the but, creation isn't yet. But the creation isn't yet. It will be because of what Christ did. Because Satan is defeated. Right. Uh, I read it not as the NAS and several other translations read this as it being God who subjects the... The, the universe in this but either us because we screw it up which is essentially Augustine's interpretation or, or the accuser Satan himself through us which is how it usually ends up being anyway because we, we are doing it we make a mess of this universe let's finish out the paragraph that way we can start at verse 18 next time. <laughs> Where we're going to start today. No, I always start back a few verses. You know that. We just took a heck of a lot longer in those first few. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains. Ooh. Ooh. Groaning in labor pains until now. And that's interesting. That's to noon. The now. That's a precise statement in Greek. Always is. That is something that you look for when you read it. When you see that definite article, it means to this instant. The now. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until the now. And, and that's when he's dictating this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly. I mean, uh, let me interpret that. We who are sort of the foretaste of the kingdom of God on earth. Grown inwardly. While we wait for adoption. The redemption of our bodies. we're, We're trapped in this physical existence that we have. In this sinning, cracky body, fleshy, sarksy body. And we're waiting for it to be undone. For in hope, 
verse 24. For in hope, and this is not wishy-washy, this word, it's, it, it's that powerful word, elpide, elpis, true hope. For in hope, for in elpis, we were saved. That, sometimes, you know, you get a little annoyed by people who talk about saved, saved, saved. Have you been saved? This salvation, this, this salvation, that. You must be saved and all that language. And it kind of it just, it grates on your nerves when you hear other people saying it. Here Paul is saying it. For in hope, and he's saying it in the past tense. In hope, we were saved. Or, possibly, for in hope, we have been saved. Which is stronger? Have been. Have been. For in hope, we have been saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. I mean, if, if you can see it, if you can experience it, if you have it right. I don't, I don't hope that I have this Coca-Cola. I've got it. What is the Greek word hope being translated from? Elpis. Elpis. E-L-P-I-S. Is it there five times like it is yeah. here? Uh -huh. Five uh -huh. times in like one long line? One sentence. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty important. He repeats it multiple times. In fact, yeah, tegar elpidi es uthamen elpis di blepomen uk estin elpis hagar blepe tis elpitze. You hear that? Elpis, elpidi, elpitze. All those are formations of the same word elpis. For in hope we were saved. I'm going, to, I'm going to use Elpis. For in Elpis we were saved. Now Elpis that is seen is not Elpis. For who Elpis is for what is seen? <laughs> mm -hmm. But if we Elpis for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Your hope is for that which you know is true, you know is coming, you have no doubt that it's there, but you don't I have it right here. That hope is a portion of base of faith is what it is in that scenario. You're going to have it is the emotional content of faith. Mm -hmm. And this is with endurance, not patience. Not so endurance, yeah. yes. Oh, God, that's stronger. Oh, yes, absolutely. We're getting ready to enter into what has to be probably my probably my favorite half chapter in Romans. I'm glad we're going to save that for next week. We need the time for that. Actually, it's a little further down, but, but, it, but we're going to hit a really interesting part here in just a moment. Um, save it for next week and the week after that. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be his favorite part. <laughs> Maybe not that far because, because well, well Look, when you get down to 31 and following, you could spend probably weeks on each verse. But if you do that, you're going to miss a whole lot of content. And that sounds strange. But the strength that comes in 31 and following 
while it's chock full of theological meaning, is actually more poetic. The sequences, the repetitive structures that he uses here is far more poetic than it is a theological argument. A theological argument's there, but it has hymnic qualities too. I'm not sure why you're telling us that because we never dwell on one thing. I mean, we just That's go the same Oh, yeah, right. Never go back. We just we spent 45 minutes on three verses. <laughs> Dialectical material. That we had already covered. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar somehow. You know, it's funny because when we, you know, listen to Dr. Scott sometimes, week after week, and be like, okay, you know, there's 60 minutes of review and 10 extra, 10 minutes of new stuff. And it's funny, if you look at our pattern, <laughs> it's been 90% review. Well, tonight. 10%. But I think it's only because a lot of times, too, when we go ahead, you know, we, we, we just get it in a quick little taste thing. It. Yeah, we taste mm-hmm. it, and then we go back. And we Last week, we had tasted that. part of right. this before, and I really wanted to hit. I wanted to hit. Here's, here was my thinking when I was planning for tonight's study. What was most important in this preceding paragraph here in Romans from verse 12 down? And he starts it. So then, brothers and sisters, so then, Adelphoi, my brothers, it's the relationship, the familial relationship with God, not as Melech Ha'olam, king of the universe, but Abba Pater, Abba Father, Daddy, Daddy. It's, it's the relationship and the close relationship and what that relationship brings to us Immediately, Lee's question: What what rights come? The rights to to intimacy with God. Rights that you can't have elsewise, because God in God's nature blows you away. But because of Christ, we can be intimate with the Creator to the point of being able to say, "Daddy." Everything we would want to give to our children, God wants to give to us, and even more. Already gave it to you. Uh He gave it to you. You just haven't opened the present yet. We're evil beings. So if an evil being could want such goodness for their child, imagine what God himself, without that evil, wants for us. I'll never hear the Abba Father and the Passion reading the same again. You can't. No. Uh, My mental image. (laughs) My mental image is a photograph, I wish I could find it, it's somewhere in a big stack of photographs sitting in a drawer in mom's dresser. It's a photograph of me when I was about 30, standing, looking up at dad, he'd just come home, and I'm looking up at dad doing this. And dad's looking down at me, beaming. And, And that picture, describes the relationship that we are privileged to have because we are joint heirs with Christ. And that is a relationship that is offered to the entire creation. And it's not that it wasn't present in earlier Jewish conceptions. It was there nascently. It hadn't been fully developed until now. But it was the elements that allow for it were there. The references to God as Father existed in the Old Testament. 
But you were really moving out there when you did that. Melech Olam was how you were to address it, king of the universe. And, and that was the reality of it. And everything taught you that. From the elements of Jewish worship in terms of the sacrificial system, to the law itself, to the, to the rituals that involved around how you treated the holy things, like the Ark of the Covenant and the candlesticks and the bread of presents and all that stuff. Couldn't say his name, could you? You can't even say Yahweh without getting zapped. <laughs> you, you had to exchange. When you're reading it out of the holy writ itself, when you saw Yahweh, you can't say Yahweh, you've got to say Adonai. And so they put the vowels to Adonai underneath the consonants for Yahweh, which generated Jehovah. And caused problem with all them Germans. But I'm serious. You couldn't say it. Therefore, yeah. th that was the holiness, the reverence. That's a good thing. But when it comes to the point of making it impossible to go daddy. It, it, and that was something that Jesus corrected. By teaching the disciples to pray in that formula structure. Not the prayer itself, but the pattern for prayer that begins our father it could be equally prayed our mother it's the parental connection to this creator which is an amazing affirmation for humans creatures earth creatures Adamai, to make the idea that you can say daddy or mommy to the one who made everything? You kidding? I read an article today, New York Times. Scientists were quoted saying, within five to 10 years at the latest, they will have created artificial life. Right. And that was a statement. And this, yeah. this scientist was bold. He says, yep, we'll have created artificial life. And the thing I wanted to know was, okay, did they invent a new method, a new biochemical method to create some kind of a molecular system whereby genetic information could be transmitted that's not DNA? Did they invent some new kind of molecular communications and recording system other than DNA? Because if they didn't, they haven't created nothing. They've taken what God created and re-pieced it together to make something new. Well, we've been piecing genetic material together for years now. That's nothing new. And who created them in the first place? Well, you know the joke, don't you? The scientists come up to God and say, we don't need you anymore. We've learned about biology and biochemistry. We, can, we, we don't need you anymore, God. So God says, okay, I'll, I'll, let's have a, a human-making contest. I'll make a human and you make a human. Out of scratch. And whoever makes the better human wins. And so the scientist says, you're on, God. And so God bends down and gets some dust and mud and makes a human and fashions it and makes the arms and the legs and the fingers and the organs and gets it all together, blows into them, the human being comes alive. Scientists say, wow, that's pretty good. And they look at each other and they say, God says, okay, now you do it. And they look around and they bend down and they start to scrape up the dirt. And God says, wait a minute, get your own dirt. <laughs> I mean, you know, come on. You know, if you're going to make it from scratch, make it from scratch. Invent a new way 
of carrying genetic material. Invent a new gene. And not, not sequence together the nucleotides and the, and the, the, the uh, amino acids in such a way that it makes another sequence. No, invent a new molecule to do it out of scratch. Not DNA and RNA and all that stuff and the enzymes that unlock it and split it apart and go through mitosis and all that stuff. No, invent a whole brand new way. That would be inventing life from scratch. They haven't even gotten even close to that because they don't understand how the other stuff really works. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.